The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'm going to return to the subject that we've talked about for the last few weeks. We had a little bit of an interruption last week while I was gone. But I want to look uh, at this last story in in, uh, Matthew chapter 17 as we've been talking about human government and our responsibilities to it. Today we're going to shift our focus a little bit away from that and talk a little bit more about who we are in the kingdom of God. I'd like to read these verses and then we're going to switch over to another passage that talks to us about another place that we call home. Not this world, but our citizenship is in another place and that is in heaven, a place that Christ is preparing for us. If you'll look in Matthew chapter 17, we'll start reading here. Stand with me as we read God's word and uh, we'll start at verse number 24, Matthew 17 verse number 24. And when they were come to Capernaum, and that's talking about Jesus and the disciples, they're returning to their home base in Capernaum in Galilee. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was come into the house, Jesus prevented him. It occurred to me that the three previous times that we read this passage, I haven't actually explained to you what that means when it says Jesus prevented him. That means that before Peter spoke, Jesus knew exactly what had taken place. He prevented him, or it means before Peter could speak, Jesus spoke. So he's the first one to speak here. He knows knows what Peter's, uh, the conversation that Peter had previously. Jesus prevented him saying, what thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute of their own children or of strangers Peter saith unto him of strangers Jesus saith unto him then are the children free notwithstanding lest we should offend them go thou to the sea and cast an hook and take up the fish that first cometh up and when thou hast opened his mouth thou shalt find a piece of money that take and give unto them for me and thee Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Open up our hearts today as we study this passage a a little bit more. Give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. For three Sunday mornings, I've used this text to show you how that Jesus taught the disciples about being a good citizen of of this world, of this country that we live in while at the same time that we're citizens of heaven. Now, there was a question in the passage about paying taxes, and it wasn't a tax that Jesus was obligated to pay. This was a tax that was being collected for the upkeep of the priest in Jerusalem and for the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus wasn't obligated to pay that tax because Jesus is God. The temple was built for him. The priests were there to worship him. Israel was his nation. And for Jesus to pay the tax would have been like paying himself. 
But the purpose of the question here, or it is the purpose of Jesus asking Peter, when he says, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute of their own children or of strangers? Uh, Jesus is there showing Peter that he is the king of all worlds, that he is the king of the temple. The temple is his temple. As I said, the nation of Israel is his nation. He's not required to pay the tax, but he has a much greater principle to teach Peter here. They should pay the tax, and this is because not everybody understood who Jesus was. Not everybody in Israel that he preached to understood that he was the Messiah, that he was the king. We know that because it won't be long from this passage before Jesus is crucified. They don't recognize him as the king. So the reason that Jesus told Peter to pay the tax was because he didn't want to make a needless offense. That would have hindered the gospel. The most important thing that we do is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we ought never to do is to give needless offense to people or give them another reason to hate the gospel of Christ or not to like us. And so we take all pains that we can to be sure that we don't raise unnecessary objections in people's minds to the gospel of Christ. Peter, or rather Paul, said that the gospel of Christ is already offensive to people. He said the cross is offensive to people. You know that. People that you talk to, that you live with, that you work with, if you try to witness to them about the cross of Christ, if you try to talk to them about the Lord, you know that they are offended by what you say. You try to tell somebody that they're a sinner, they're going to be offended by what you say. There's a way to approach that. And what Jesus did not want to do here was to give needless offense about the gospel. So this is really just the simple teaching of the passage. Jesus wanted to show the disciples how they can get along in a hostile world, in a world that doesn't like Christianity, that doesn't like the things of Christ. How can we get along here as citizens of heaven? Well, the way to do that is to be good citizens of the country in which we live. Now, I think we've sufficiently covered that, how that God has ordained government and how that we are to treat those that are in government with respect. We're to pray for those that are in authority. We are to honor those that are in authority, even though they may not be personally honorable. Yet the Bible says that we are to give them honor. We are to obey our leaders, even when they make laws that we don't like, even when they make laws that we think are wrong. As long as those laws do not come in conflict with the word of God and the purposes of God, we are to obey our government. Now, I know all of us complain about government. There's hardly a person in here, I don't think, that sometimes complained about the taxes you pay and all the laws that the government makes that you don't like. But I don't think anybody here, I, I doubt that there's one of you that would say, well, let's just do away with government. Let's get rid of our government. We're not going to do that. We've had millions of people, thousands or upon thousands maybe I should say, of, of people of our country that have given their lives in wars in order to keep the government that we have so that we have the right to complain. So we, would not want, we wouldn't want to get rid of our government. And you should know that government is a very good idea, and it's a good idea because God gave it. We didn't start government, God did. And ultimately, it is God who is in control of all governments. 
Now, I'd like to move on from that this morning, get away from human government for a little while, and talk to you some more about the other kingdom that we belong to, that we are waiting to get into the heavenly kingdom, and that's the real home of the Christian. We're waiting to get there, but we're not waiting to obtain citizenship. We already have that. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. And actually the Bible teaches that your name was written down before the foundation of the world. You're on the roll call of heaven and you're just waiting for God to call you home. Now for those of you who haven't been with us through this entire series in the previous weeks, uh, you look at your outline, it looks a little bit strange. It doesn't start with number one, it starts with number four. And we've already been through the three previous points, which were God's revelation of the cross for citizenship, God's recognition of human citizenship, our responsibilities as secular citizens... And today I want to talk to you about this fourth area, the realm of Christ's kingdom. Now I'd like to go to the 14th chapter of John. If you have your Bible, you might want to turn there. Uh, we'll, We'll read from John chapter 14. And this is just a beautiful passage. It was spoken just before Jesus was taken to be crucified. This was... At the time of the Last Supper, Jesus had spoken to his disciples in that supper about how he would be betrayed. He'd just spoken about Peter's denial. And then he says this in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Now there's a reason that Jesus starts out, let not your heart be troubled. And this is because he's already spoken to them about death, hasn't he? And he's talked to them about betrayal. And he's talked about leaving them. So he says, don't let your heart be troubled about this. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Now the place that Jesus went to prepare is the city of heaven. And I think that that's referring to the final form of heaven. We just read about that a few minutes ago in Revelation chapter 21 where it talks about the new Jerusalem. And I think it's talking about that, that this is the place where our spirits will be joined with our glorified bodies. We'll be given a body that's made like the Lord Jesus Christ. In that heavenly country we'll be made perfect. We'll live forever in the presence of God. Now that is really just a marvelous thought to think that our place is secure in heaven. It's already assured. We are citizens today of this heavenly country uh, that God has prepared for us. So our home there is in heaven and it's just waiting and being prepared for our arrival. Many of you are getting older and you know the time for you to go to heaven to see heaven's getting nearer. And you're anxiously awaiting it. I love to talk to some of our older members. We sit down and we talk about life and we talk about what's, what's happened over their lives. And there's a gleam that comes into the eye of a Christian who knows it's getting close to time to go home. They talk about the place that God has prepared for them. They're expecting to go there. That's one of the promises that we live for, that we're going to see Jesus Christ. And I know and they know 
that when the time comes to die, they'll be carried away from here on angels' wings, right into the presence of God. And when you see that joy and that hope in a Christian's eyes, that's just great encouragement for the rest of us to to see that faith that they know that they're going to be in heaven. So we have citizenship already in heaven, in that heavenly kingdom, but we're also living in Christ's kingdom on the earth. Now there's a day when Christ is going to come and he's going to rule in a physical kingdom upon this earth. Christ will come and he'll sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. He'll rule from there. The whole world will bow down before him and his people will be the ministers of Christ in that government. Now that's the part of the kingdom that the disciples hoped to see right away. They thought it was coming immediately and they didn't understand that before that kingdom comes to the earth, the physical kingdom comes, that Christ is ruling in a spiritual kingdom. And that spiritual kingdom is right now. We're living in the spiritual kingdom of Christ at this very moment. And that misunderstanding is what caused the disciples to keep asking questions about when is the kingdom coming? When are we going to get our position? They were all jockeying for their position in that physical kingdom that was coming. And they didn't understand. They were already in the spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ. And there are certain attitudes, there are certain ways that, have to, that have to, a person has to behave to, to be right in that kingdom. Interestingly, in the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 18, again in their misunderstanding, the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That just accentuated their misunderstandings. They didn't know what they were asking And Jesus deflated their egos by saying that to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must become as a little child. There is a real physical kingdom. You can count on it. You can read about it. Many places in scripture tell us about that kingdom that it's coming. But that's not the kingdom that I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about this spiritual kingdom that is right now. And you, as a child of God, are living in Christ's kingdom. And he's ruling in this kingdom right now as much as he will in a physical kingdom that's coming to the earth. Sometimes we get confused about that and we think, well, you know, the kingdom is not now. There is no kingdom now. Nobody's in control. Christ is not in control. And we're just sitting here trying to get through the best we can There are all kinds of problems that we have, all kinds of issues that are going on. Christ can't be in charge of what's happening right now. But that's not what the scripture says. Christ is ruling now. He is in control now. And all of these little blips that you see that don't appear to be right and doesn't look like Christ is in control, you just need to understand that that is God working things according to his perfect will. That God is in control of all things. Everything is working after the counsel of his will. You can't understand what's in the secret providence of God. You don't know how God has planned things out that you can't see. But you can be sure of this, that every event that happens, everything that happens to you, everything that takes place in this world is under the providence of God. He knows about that. He controls all of it. And he's bringing it all about for the final redemption of his people. And really that's something you would never want to deny. 
You can't live without this because if God did not know and control everything from beginning to end, if God was ever out of control of anything, there'd be no hope for any of us. Many times I've mentioned to you W.A. Criswell, who is the uh, great Baptist preacher from Texas, died a few years ago, and he wrote a little article, uh, pamphlet-type thing called The Scarlet Thread of Redemption. And Criswell explains how that this scarlet thread winds its way throughout the Bible. From the beginning to the end, that scarlet thread, which he equates with Christ's blood, with redemption, that is woven into the fabric of the Bible from the beginning to end. When we take this book, we find that the Word of God, that this Bible is all about Jesus Christ. That when you read about the creation in the Bible, that's talking to us about Jesus Christ. The whole book is about him. Our lives are about him. If anyone ever asks you, why are we here? What are we doing here? You point up and you say, it's because of the Lamb of God. It's because of Jesus Christ that we are here. It's all about him. Philosophers and scientists, they've been trying to answer that question for hundreds of years. Why are we here? And this is the answer to it. They try to figure it out. They've tried to figure it out forever as if there is something besides God, but there is nothing besides God. This is what he says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And I think that he's telling us that not only is he the only God, I think he's saying here, I am it. Everything is because of me. You are here because of me. And so if you miss God, you've missed everything. If you miss God, you're, you're living in a stupor. You're living in a fog. You're, you're, you're in delusion, thinking that you do your own thing, that you control your own life, that you have power over your own destiny. You can go to churches where they tell you this. You can go hear the motivational speakers in churches who will tell you this. You have the power of your destiny. But folks, you do not have the power of your destiny. That belongs to God. That's in the hands of God himself. And we thank the Lord for this. We know where we are. We know where we're going. We know that heaven is our home because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We know him. He touched us. He reached down. He saved us. And he made us citizens of his kingdom. That's why we're going to heaven. So we're sure citizens of his kingdom. We live in the world, but we're not of this world. We are different from the world. And you need to know that. You need to understand that very clearly. You, as a child of God, are different from the world. Now let me talk to you about that for a few minutes. How are we different from the world? Well, there's a lot to say on this. We don't have time to cover everything that there is. But let me just give you three ways in which we're different from the world. First of all, we have a different king. You should have got that one without any help. We have a different king. The Bible describes only two types of people. There are those that are subjects of God's kingdom, and there are those that are subjects of Satan's kingdom. 
When you have a king over you, you owe allegiance to that king. Now, if we want to compare that to human government, if you're living in a kingdom and you have a king, you owe allegiance to your king. Now, those of us that are believers in Christ, we don't have any trouble at all telling people that Jesus is our king. I hope you don't have any trouble saying that. Jesus is our king. But it's not so easy for those that are in the kingdom of Satan, and that's the other kingdom, it's not so easy for them to admit that they're in Satan's kingdom. Very few of them are handing out cards that say, proud citizen of Satan's kingdom. Here's my passport. Here's my picture. I'm in Satan's kingdom. You're not going to find that because most of them don't even know they're in Satan's kingdom. They have no idea. And they're not going to take too kindly to you saying to them, you know something, you are a Satan worshiper. I don't know if I'd recommend that you approach people in that particular way, but that's the truth of it, isn't it? You are a Satan worshiper. And actually, Jesus didn't have too much trouble telling people that were in the other kingdom that that's what they were. To the wicked scribes and Pharisees, he said, you are of your father, the devil. And he said, if Satan's kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. Now, he used that last saying for a different purpose. That was when he was accused of being from Satan himself. But Jesus would have had no trouble saying, you are in Satan's kingdom and you are the ones that are helping to keep Satan's kingdom together. You're doing his work. You're following him. He's your master and he's your Lord. Now, there's an interesting way that Paul spoke of people that were in Satan's kingdom because he includes a group of people who really don't think that they are that actually think that they're in Christ's kingdom when they're in Satan's kingdom. In Philippians, he talked about a faction of false believers. There are false believers. There are people who say they are followers of Christ, but pay very close attention here. Their actions do not say the same thing. The way that they live, the things that they do, do, that does not say the same thing. This is what Paul wrote in Philippians 3. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which so walk as ye have us for an example. Now Paul said, you follow what I'm doing. You follow my example. This is the way that Christians live. And he, he lived a, a life that was exemplary, so he could tell people that. He said, for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, he's talking about people who claim to be saved, but he says they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. That is a person who says he's a Christian who has his mind all the time on this world and what this world is all about. Now notice carefully what Paul says. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. No matter how much they claim that they're on the other side, no matter how much they say, yes, Jesus is my king and Jesus is my savior, Paul says they are enemies. So how do you tell? When people claim otherwise, how do you know they're enemies when they claim that they're actually following Christ? Well, notice what Paul says. He says their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, and they mind earthly things. Now, for the sake of time, let's take that first one because 
I don't think there is a more apt picture of our culture that we live in today than this statement. Whose God is their belly? In other words, people in the world's kingdom are selfish people. God is self. God is pride. And isn't that just like Satan? What has it got Satan where he is today? What? It, what? Pride and selfishness. That's why Satan is where he is today. So what these people do is they live to fulfill their lust. They live for self. Now, it, it's always been that way, but I don't think it's been any more clearly demonstrated than in this overtly me-first society that we're living in right now. You just look at the advertisements that are on television or that you hear on radio and you look at that and it's always saying this, you deserve this. You need to indulge yourself. You need to buy this. This is for you. It's all about you. And you can tell who a person's God is by how they spend their money and how they use their time, where they put their energy. Most people are so burdened with debt today that when you preach on tithing, it's like preaching a foreign language. When there's church work to be done, nobody has time to do that. We're wrapped up in other things that we have to do. When we should be at church, there's something else for us to do. Someplace else that we can go. Nobody has the energy for it because they've been to some type of recreation. They're off in some kind of sports activity and they're worn out by those things. Or they just take those things and they put those things in front of God. The Bible actually calls it idolatry. You put something in front of God, that is idolatry. But people do that. They say they're Christians and they do those things because those things are more fun than being at church. So who's really your God? There are actually four T's that are a quick reference guide to who is your God. Four T's, what do you think about? What do you talk about? Where do you spend time? And where do you spend your treasure? Think, talk, time, treasure. Those are four T's that tell you who your God really is. And when all four of those things, really even when one of those things is about satisfying you, then you've just identified your God. It tells you who your king is. So you don't have to go around and say, hey, guess what? I'm a Satan worshiper. You don't need to tell us that. We just look and see where you spend your time, what you think about or what you talk about, where you put your money. You've identified your God. And if you are a self-worshipper, if everything is always about you and all those four things are always about you, then that's your God. If you are a self-worshipper, that's one and the same as being in Satan's kingdom. But a Christian's different. I mean, if you've been born of God, you have a different king. Your allegiances are different. So what is it that dominates your thinking? What do you like to talk about? Where do you like to spend your time? What do you do with your treasure? Now, if you're a Christian and you're a member of Briam Baptist Church, I hope you say this. I think about Christ. 
Christ is always on my mind. I I always like to talk about him. I I like to pray to him. I I like to speak to God. I like to learn about him in my Bible. I bring my tithes and my offerings. My treasure belongs in God's work. He's the one that I love. He's my God. He's my king. Now, that's the difference. And what I want you to see as the difference today, and I'm talking about these four T's and these other things, is what tells who your king is, is the amount of God consciousness that you have. Where is the level of your God consciousness? Paul speaks of examining our lives. you remember that scripture? When he said, examine your life to see if you are in the faith. Think I have to say that again. Now think about that. He said, examine your life to see if you are in the faith. Now obviously there are some who said they were in the faith, but they're not in the faith. And he says, examine your life to see if you are there. What would you examine? What do you think he'd be talking about examining? What, what is the special things, these, this great big list of things that you're to examine to see if you're in the faith? I've just given them to you. Your time, what you talk about, what you think about. What do you value most? Your treasure, where do you put it? That's what you examine to see if you are really in the faith. And if you fall short there, then you'd better very seriously consider, do you actually know Christ? And that's basically what Jesus did when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He just told people there how Christians live, how Christians act. And if you don't find these kinds of characteristics in your life, then you aren't one of his children. The Bible describes who the, who the children of God are. So, you know, we like, we like to tell people we're Baptist and we have our, you know, one of our big, big doctrines, things that we believe, which is absolutely true, that once we are saved, we are always saved. You can't ever lose your salvation. Once you've trusted Christ as Savior, you can never be lost again. But the thing that really needs to be emphasized in that is not the part you can never be lost again. The real part that needs to be emphasized, are you once saved? You have to get there first. Were you actually once saved? Did you get what you claim that you got? How do you know? The proof is in your life. Who is really your king? We have a different king. Secondly, we have different laws. Now, I don't mean that we no longer live by the laws of the United States because if you were here previously and listened to the messages, you know that's not true. We do live by the laws of the United States. When you become a Christian, you don't stop obeying the law. Actually, a Christian becomes more acutely aware of the law. Now, if you had followed me down I-5 to the uh, conference the other day or back Saturday morning very early, you'd say, that guy knows nothing about the law. You know, I realize that I preach to myself sometimes when I talk about these things. Don't think the preacher doesn't get a lesson too. But as good citizens, good ambassadors for Christ, we need to be very careful about any hints of impropriety. You know, I suppose that I'm driving down I-5 and, you know, passing and carrying on and going my speed. 
And I stop somewhere and somebody stops beside me and I say, hey, you know something? I'd like to talk to you for just a minute about Jesus. And they say, well, you fool, are you crazy? I'm listen, somebody that crazy drives like that. You know, I can turn people off. You have to be careful about those things. But let's think about everyday life. I mean, just, just things we do in everyday life. Let's say you're a Christian businessman, a Christian businesswoman. You, as a Christian, live by a different code of conduct. Paul said, we must live in all godliness and honesty. That means as a Christian businessman, Christian businesswoman, that your word is your bond. Christians don't try to cheat people. They don't try to pull shady deals on people. They don't try to get advantage of someone else. Now, if you're not a businessman, then just take into account the way that you normally interact with people and go above and beyond as a Christian what other people will do. For instance, if you have something to sell, don't misrepresent it. Today we carry on all kinds of business transactions where we don't actually see the people that we buy and sell things from. Uh, we're, we're a screen name or an account number. And what you have to remember is that screen names and account numbers are actually people. And whether you're online or no matter where you are, you are a Christian and you represent Jesus Christ. And when you put your name out there and you put your information out there and you say what you say, you represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to think about what you have to say in those kinds of places because if you bear his name, you had better speak well of him. Think about your simple everyday transactions. When you go to the store and a clerk gives you the wrong change, what do you do? Now, I'll tell you what we do if the clerk shortchanges us. If they give us $5 back and we were supposed to get $7 back, we say, whoa, wait just a minute. Where's my other $2? We, we do that all the time, don't we? But what about if the clerk shortchanges herself? himself. And instead of giving you $5 back, they give you $7 back. What do you do then? See ya. My good luck, my good fortune. That's not what a Christian does. A Christian says, you know something, you charged me too much, or you gave, or rather you gave me back too much, and here's $2. That's yours, that's not mine. That's what a Christian does. You, you think like that. Did you also know this, that Christ taught his followers to be good employees? Now, in the apostles' time, Christians were slaves. Many of them were, rather. And, and did you know that Jesus never told any slave? Paul never told any slave. He never said to them, what you need to do is break free from your master. You need to do everything that you can to steal from them, get what's yours, because they deserve to be stolen from. They put you into slavery. You know, the Bible never says anything like that. That's, that might, that's puzzling to our way of thinking, but that's, that's the way the Bible... The uh, Bible doesn't say for slaves to do that. And the reason it didn't, because this was the way that Christian slaves were taught to win their masters to the Lord. How? Be the best slave you can be. 
I know that's foreign to our way of thinking, but that's the way the Bible teaches. And you know why the Bible tells us about things like that? Because that information is to be translated into our day and time. We're to take that and apply it to our lives. And so he's telling us the same thing about Christian employees. There's nothing less here than the scripture telling us to do what they did then. Be the best employee that you can be. But most people, even Christians, say, I'll do my job. I'll do what I'm supposed to do, only what I'm supposed to do. If my boss is looking, then I'll spend a little while sending out emails and tweets and, and uh, um, what is that, texting. I'll do that. If the boss is not looking, I'll do that for a while. I'll surf the net for a while. And if he's not looking, you know what I might do? I just might sneak out a little bit early. Christian puts in every minute required. A Christian works hard. A Christian works cheerfully. If you leave and you take another job, your boss ought to say, that person was the best employee I ever had. I'm sorry to see him go. If you're a person that regularly loses a job, something's wrong with your Christianity. I know we live in a bad economy and many people have lost their jobs and they were good employees. Maybe you're doing everything you should have done and you've lost your job. That's the economy. But what I'm telling you, though, is when the cuts come and when the layoffs come, if there is a way to keep you, they will keep you. Because nobody's going to turn loose or kick out a good, hardworking honest, pleasant, likable employee if they don't have to. Nobody in their right mind would do that. That's part of living in God's kingdom while living in the world. You live by different laws. Your ethics are different. You're ruled by the king, and this king has the best subjects of any king. Now, let me go further. Let's see how else we're different. We have a different king. We have different laws. Now, thirdly, we have different rights. Different rights. Now, we live in a nation of rights. There's one thing that's fundamental to being American. It's our guaranteed individual rights. In some ways, that's hard for us. It's really hard for us to relate to living in a kingdom because we give ourselves our rights. The American people establish our rights. Now, sometimes our leaders forget that, and they forget who they're working for, I know. But basically, Americans, we live by our own standards. We give ourselves our rights. The majority does that. And Americans are usually very concerned about rights, even to the point that if my rights trample on your rights, that's okay because they're my rights. So we've become a very litigious society. Everybody's suing somebody else over their rights. So that's one form of rights. But a kingdom's different. In a kingdom, the kingdom, or the king rather, is the one who grants the rights. There aren't really any inherent rights that that you demand because the king is the ruler. He's the one that gives the citizen his rights. Now, sometimes that's not true, I know, because we have different forms of monarchy, like constitutional monarchy. There, a a king is just the figurehead. People are still in control. But the absolute form of government or absolute monarchy, that's the form of government that we find in the Bible when it's talking about the king. That's the kind of king that God is. He is an absolute monarch. He is the one who grants all of the rights. Now, if there's a bad king, the terminology changes, and they call a bad king a dictator. Well, an interesting thing 
about that is those those that live in a monarchy have various degrees of freedom depending upon the disposition of the monarch. And what most people do not realize, realize is that in the spiritual world, in these two kingdoms that I've talked about, that those that are in Satan's kingdom are under a dictatorship. And that dictator is Satan. And I know they talk all the time about freedom and they talk about their free will and they talk about I do what I want to do. I'm my own person, I'm my own man, I'm my own woman. But actually, every person in Satan's kingdom is walking lockstep with Satan. The Bible says that Satan has dominion over this world and that's talking about the natural man. So every person without Christ is dominated by Satan. And Satan's dominion is a dictatorship. It's all bad. There aren't any upsides. All of the people that are in Satan's kingdom are headed for one place, one place only, and that's the lake of fire. We read about it in the Word of God. Well, what people don't understand also is that God is not running a constitutional monarchy. God is an absolute monarch, only we don't call him a dictator because he's running a kingdom that operates in perfect kindness and goodness and righteousness. There is no oppression in his kingdom. There's only the best, the very best of everything in his kingdom. Paul summed that up in these terms. In Ephesians, he said, the riches of his grace, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's Ephesians chapter 1. So that means our salvation and our deliverance from hell, the inheritance of all things that belong to Christ become ours. So there is no downside to living in Christ's kingdom. But scripture never talks about living in freedom in Christ's kingdom, except in only one way, only one respect. We're free from Satan We're free from the law of sin and death. We're not going to die. We're not going to hell. We're free from the law that binds us to eternal death. Other than that, it says that we are slaves in Christ's kingdom. Did you know that? We are slaves of Christ's kingdom. But we want nothing else. In Romans 1, chapter 1, Paul uses his customary greeting when he writes to the church and he says this, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. Now the word servant in that passage is the Greek word doulos. And here's Albert Barnes' comment on that term. The proper meaning of this word servant, doulos, is slave, one who is not free. It expresses the condition of one who has a master or is in the control of another. It is often, however, applied to courtiers or the officers that serve under a king because in an eastern monarchy, the relation of an absolute king to his courtiers corresponded nearly to that of a master and a slave. Thus, the word is expressive of dignity and honor, and the servants of a king denote officers of a high rank and station. It is applied to the prophets as those who were honored by God or especially entrusted by him with office. And so you see, rather than calling ourselves slaves in the sense that we are beaten into submission to follow God, we consider it our greatest honor to be called a slave of Jesus Christ. All of the writers in the New Testament use the same terminology. Paul uses it, Peter uses it, James uses it, Jude uses it. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. But listen carefully 
the wonderful blessing of being Christ's slave is that he does not treat us as slaves, but he treats us as his dear children. We have been adopted into the family of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That means Daddy. That means like Daddy, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then in Galatians, he he speaks more clearly to that point. He says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of the son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And now listen carefully to what Jesus said in John 15. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. That's the wonderful thing about being in Christ's kingdom. Satan's kingdom is one of slavery of the worst sort. It has no positives. There is no good outcome to it. The more you do in Satan's kingdom, the worse it becomes. Condemnation is heaped upon condemnation. But in Christ's kingdom, the more you do, the greater the blessings there are. And reward is heaped upon reward. So Christ is an absolute monarch. He reigns supreme. His servants don't decide their rights and privileges. Those are granted by God. But we're not merely slaves. We're sons of God, heirs of everything that God possesses. Now we go back to Matthew 17, 25, and we're just about done. What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or of strangers? Peter saith unto him, of strangers... Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Jesus is the king, and we are his slaves, but also his adopted children. Wonderful thing again about being in Christ's kingdom is that everything that the king has, you are his child, everything that he has belongs to you. It's all been granted to you by the king. And you know one of the greatest blessings too is that you have the right to come into the presence of the king. You have the right to talk to him. You have the right to come in and sit with him and talk with him. That's because you're also a child. And do you know this? That access to the father is granted only one way and that is through Jesus Christ. That's why the word of God says when you pray, pray in the name of Jesus Christ because you cannot get into God's throne room any other way. You must come through Jesus Christ. So do you see who we are? Who who are we as as God's people? we're, We're different from everybody else. We're living in the world. We're not of this world. We're citizens of heaven. We live differently. We have a different king. We have different laws and we have different rights. We are in the world, 
but we're pilgrims and strangers that are passing through, waiting for the appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. And my question for you is, are you in Christ's kingdom? Can you say that you have his citizenship stamped on your heart? Do you belong to him? I've given you a way that you could check that out just a few minutes ago. Do you actually belong to him? And if you don't, getting into Christ's kingdom is not a hard thing to do. There's only one thing that he asks from you, and that is to have faith in him, to trust him as Savior, repent of your sins, turn from your sins, receive him as Lord and Savior, the king of your life, and you will be his and live with him forever. And just a word to you that are citizens. You say you're citizens. The king is coming. What do you think about? What do you talk about? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your treasure? Your your mouth, your mind, your meter, your money, all of that belongs to him. All of it is his. He gave everything for you. Now you give everything to him. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence now. We, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, there's a high standard that's put forth here. I suspect that there are people in the congregation today who say they're Christians, but they get very, very uncomfortable when we talk about where we spend our time and the things that we think about and the things that we talk about and the places that we spend our money. And really, in none of those is Lord number one. There ought to be very serious concern about that. We pray that everyone here today would know that they are in your kingdom by receiving you as Lord and Savior and then changing through the Holy Spirit these things in their lives so they have the evidence and the assurance that they truly do know you. Help us, Lord, as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.